0: America is an amazing country filled with wonderful people who do incredible things. But too often the media and liberal politicians ignore big parts of our nation and the people who make it work. So I'm speaking with leaders and policymakers who deal with real problems every day. I'm Ronna McDaniel and this is Real America. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida. We're going to discuss everything from vaccine mandates and school choice to the dangers of critical race theory and his experience as a black conservative man in America. Byron Donalds, Congressman Byron Donalds, welcome to my podcast, Real America. We're so happy to have you here with us today. No, that's cool. I'm excited. I'm excited. I just met you for the first time. I will say, uh, I think you might have one of the best districts in the country in Naples, Florida. It is gorgeous there. Is it hard to come back to D.C.? When you're back in district,
1: well, first thing correction, it is by far the best district
0: in America. I have to be a little, more, district in I have a little bit more neutral.
1: You can be neutral. I'm you don't have be to be. It is it's pretty the best amazing district there in America.
0: And I, my brother lives there, so you have some constituents oh, yeah. in my family. But it is really magical where where you. It's live. hard coming here. It um, is.
1: I remember I was on a, my wife and I it was after the primary elections and we're on a boat off of Marco Island and people kept asking, Hey, are you going? Are you moving to DC? Are you moving to DC? Are you moving to DC. And we're in like the backwater somewhere. And I look at her and I'm like, why the heck would I move to DC? <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> trying to come here and I'm going to go there. So Everybody's
0: I, trying to I go can... where you are. I know. And as a Michigander, a lot of people go to where you are. It's yeah. really beautiful. And I was so, uh, Lo- I so loved meeting you and your wife, Erica, uh, but I want to talk about your story a little bit more because right. people may not know you. You're a new congressman, but you grew up in New York mm-hmm. with a single mom mm-hmm. and then she moved you to Florida. So tell me what that was like starting in New York. You left when you were like 17.
1: Yeah. Well, actually she didn't want me to leave. She didn't. I decided to leave.
0: Okay. I was
1: tired of being cold. I was tired were you? of you? So you
0: knew early on. Oh
1: Yeah. Like because you grew up in Brooklyn, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. You grow up, you know. We get our snowstorms and stuff. You know, stuff. You know, the stuff that yeah. happens up up north, obviously. But you know, as the only you know boy, it's your job is to salt the steps. It's your job to shovel the to shovel driveways and do all that stuff. And a lot of times, it's not even so much that it's snowing; it gets it gets bitterly
0: cold. Yes, I know that like cold bitterly. Like cold. your bones are cold.
1: Oh man, my fingers! Like you know, yeah. I got you know, I got long fingers and stuff. So like, it would just, I was done. So when it was time for me to go to college, I picked out five schools. Uh, One of those schools was Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. Uh, FAMU, HBCU, I went there to study business. I didn't look at maps because if I looked at maps, I probably wouldn't have picked Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. But um, it was a great experience nonetheless.
0: And so then you you were in banking, right? And in business. So how did you go from there to congressman? I know you had a stint in the state legislature. Yeah. So tell me about that path for you.
1: So I actually got involved in politics like, you know, during the Tea Party movement. OK. So what happened to me was it was the financial collapse 2000, 2008. Yep. Um, I was in insurance at the time. OK. And we had Taiwanese investors. And they were looking at what was happening in America with our financial collapse, but didn't know. So I was tasked with going in and finding out the who, what, when, where, and why to try to calm our investors down. One of the things I did when I was kind of got to the end of my of my analysis was I turned on the House Financial Services Committee. Okay. And I turned on this committee, and I think Barney Frank is chair at the time. Yep. And I'm watching the members of Congress do the five-minute spiel that we do in committees. Mm-hmm. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, who are these people? What are they talking about? That is not true. That doesn't make any sense. This is not how it works. Aren't you guys supposed to be in charge? And that's the thing that kind of got That was your me off
0: awakening. That was your moment.
1: That was the moment.
0: And then you ran for what was your first office you ran for? Congress actually. Congress. Oh, okay. 2012.
1: This is the one that nobody really knows about. Okay. But I'm comfortable so I'm am going to put it out there. I like it. So I was uh, I was in a Tea Party movement a couple of years. Okay. Um I worked on Herman Cain's presidential okay. like on the local level. You know, you have the local affiliates of the,
0: of uh-huh. the national campaign. Absolutely.
1: I wrote newsletters. I don't know nine, what I was nine, doing.
0: 999 Herman it, Cain 999
1: and so when the campaign ended, the head of the, of the local campaign looked at me and said, you need to run for Congress. And I was just like, Levine Kirkpatrick. I'll never forget her. I was, she texts me all the time now. She goes, he, you need to run. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she goes, you know the issues. You're smart. People respect you. People like you. And I'm like, I'm a regular guy. Uh, nobody knows me. I don't know what running for Congress even means. You're crazy. But I thought about it for a month. okay, And I decided to run. And so I ran this campaign. It was all grassroots, you know, all just, you know, trying 50, 50 different things. 45 of them failed and didn't make any sense. Um, but actually, I learned a lot. You really learn about yourself when you run for office. Mm-hmm. And you really learn about the issues because you really have to dig in. Um, so I won the most votes in my county, which shocked okay. everybody. I mean, I raised like $80,000, but I won my county. It's the smaller of the two That's a
0: big deal, actually, with $80,000. It was. And th- but then you ran for state legislature after, right? Yeah.
1: So I stayed involved. Okay. 2016, we had a state legislative seat come up. I ran, won one big. Okay. And I was in the state legislature for four years, and I was actually ready to be done. I was ready to leave politics and just go and back go back to my into my the life.
0: private sector. Mm-hmm. And then you,
1: our seat came open again, like, like the fourth time in like a decade uh-huh. it came open, and I got a couple phone calls from people who I you know I trust, and they were like, "Listen." we know how you feel about Washington. We know you you don't want to do this. We know you're not a fan of the place, but you really need to think about doing this.
0: So what did you learn between your first and your second run? I mean, tell me how much that first run prepared you for the second run for Congress.
1: Well, I think the first thing is that you learn the discipline of a campaign. Mm -hmm. Like campaigns are these things that just spring up out of nowhere and they're chaotic and they're insane. But there is a discipline that every candidate has to have. Mm-hmm. And it's different than being an activist. I always try to tell people who are political activists, when you're an activist, you're focused on your issue. When you're a candidate, you have to add people. And there are two different dynamics. And you have to bring a lot of people That's together. That's such
0: a good point. Because yeah. when you're an activist, you're right. You you have the luxury mm-hmm. of focusing, focusing on one issue. Somebody said that to me. If you, want, if you really want to govern, you can't be just single issue. No. Uh, go join that cause. Mm. But if you really want to run for office, you have to be open to talking about every issue and bringing people in to vote for you. That's such a good point. That's exactly right. So you were elected with this great freshman class. Yeah people don't realize the red wave started in 2020
1: that's correct with
0: 15 new house members that flipped democrat seats actually 30 overall mm-hmm. and it actually started back in 2020 what are you enjoying about congress right now and what are things that you had no idea that you didn't expect
1: well i, I think i came i came here with the benefit having served in a legislature okay. and i've known the members who served up here from my area so I knew a little bit more than probably other members get who come in for the first time now. I think the key thing up here that I, 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 really enjoyed is you really are at the pulse of what our politics are nationally. You know, even when the Democrats are doing some of the craziest things that they're doing and I'll, it's all of it's crazy. All of it's crazy. When you're in the center of that, you literally are in the arena. Like the thing that caught me off guard is that literally everything I say is like recorded, timestamped, yep. uh, distributed. It comes back to me like three weeks later in social media. Somebody would be like, hey, I saw this. This was great. And I'm like, where did you even get this? That's so true. But everything we say is is it's just
0: recorded. a much higher, much bigger stage, right? Yeah. And yeah. a much higher visibility. You've been a great spokesperson, though, already. You're out on the media. Mm-hmm. You're talking about huge issues. Um I want to talk about a couple that you've hit really hard. And one is crime. Uh, You talked to me the other day when I saw you about when you left New York, Giuliani was the mayor then. um, And then you're seeing this huge spike in crime. Talk about how you feel about what you're seeing from the Democrats and the defund the police movement, not just defund, demoralize, um, make sure that uh, really doubling down on, uh, on their anti-police policies, which is, stifling recruitment and then the crime spikes we're seeing versus what Republicans stand for?
1: Well, I got to tell you, the first part is is it's been disheartening just to see the fact that you have a political party that forgot what the basis of civilization is. Yeah. Like if you can't have order and I'm not saying, I don't want people to think, oh, you mean control. That's not true. If you can't have basic order and harmony and respect in communities, you can't have an economy. You can't educate kids. You can't go to church. You can't do any of the and any of the basic things that a lot of us take for granted sometimes in America. And they've forgotten that because of political gain. And I mean, look, in politics, we are always looking at what's happening in the culture and that we take that and try to figure out ways to position an issue, position ideas, so on and so forth. But what the Democrats have done, which is so destructive, is that they've taken the pain and anguish That has existed in the Black community that a lot of Black Americans have thought and felt for a very long time. And they've exploited that to the detriment of the people they said they were coming to help. You cannot be in New York City and talk about how you want to be soft on crime and you want to defund police. Anybody that says that did not possibly either A, grow up in an inner city and know what they're talking about like I do. Or B, they have an ulterior motive or an agenda they're trying to accomplish there's no possible way you can think logically and say, oh, you know, if we have less police on the streets, this is a good thing. It was awful. And now what we're seeing is that the same Democrats who are running around in the summer of 2020 talking about we need fundamental police reform, we need to defund police. Now they're trying to run around and say, oh, no, no, no. We we, we like the
0: police. We, we want the that. police. Oh, no, we, no, didn't we didn't mean, mean that. that. We actually need to add them to our budget. I mean, it is so interesting. And yeah. I, I know you weren't in Congress when this happened, yeah. but Tim Scott came out and mm-hmm. had a police reform bill. Democrats used the filibuster to kill it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see Democrats continuing to double down on all the problems with police, but they don't want to fix it. No. Their answer is defund it. But who does that hurt? It hurts black communities. It hurts minority communities. It hurts property values. It hurts schools. Right. It hurts every single person in that community when they do not feel safe.
1: 100%. And when they
0: do not feel like they can walk to work or go to school without that that attack or something coming coming their way and you look at what's happening in New York mm-hmm. you look at the cashless bail and mm-hmm. these criminals getting right back out on the street it has to just blow your mind to watch it does what's happening to communities democrats say they serve that they are actually hurting through their policies
1: well i think that's why you're you're seeing you're going to start seeing it started in 20 i agree but it happened in Virginia. Yep. It happened in New Jersey. Yep.
0: I mean, it, it was did. happening in
1: Seattle and it was happening in McAllen, Texas. You're starting to see a revolt of just voters. Because one thing is that the Democrats have forgotten, in my view, is that it's not 2000 politics anymore where you can say something in the room and it doesn't travel faster than by the time you got to the car. Yep. Now with social media, everything's running around all, all over the time. And me and my team, we, we laugh about it all the time. The internet never forgets. And it actually, and it's actually quite funny. I know that I'm
0: a mother of a 16-year-old. I tell them that all the time. It never forgets. It never forgets. Be careful.
1: And so I think, you know, look, when you have Wall Street firms telling their employees, hey, just dress down when you're on your way to work, which is happening in America right now. When you are looking at situations like in California or with this new DA in Manhattan, who basically listed a whole slew of crimes that he's not even going to prosecute. You you just simply can't maintain society mm-hmm. like that. And I find it, you mentioned Tim Scott, the thing that is the most hypocritical thing happening now is that the reason why a police reform bill was not passed in the U.S. Senate um, back in 2020, which if you talk to Democrats offline, they supported all the elements of his bill. But the reason why it didn't pass is because they used the filibuster to block it because they didn't want to give Donald Trump a win on police reform.
0: Exactly. So Same it wasn't people. about it wasn't about the value of the of the policy or yeah. doing the right thing. It was about partisan politics, not giving the Republican a win. Yeah. And that hurt communities. But you've called out the hypocrisy of the Congress and the and the Senate a couple times. Yeah. You you're very well versed on the hypocrisy yeah. of Democrats. Yeah. You come as a freshman black congressman from Florida. You go to the Congressional Black Caucus mm-hmm. to join their membership. And what do they say to you?
1: And they said no. Well, actually, let me back up. They didn't say anything.
0: Oh, they did.
1: It was, it was quiet. You know, my staff and I, we talked about it, you know, after Election Day in November, and we talked about caucuses. And I'm the one that said, hey, you know, I would join the, the Congressional Black Caucus. I was in the state legislative Black Caucus in Florida. Okay. So I had built relationships on the other side of the aisle, my time in the Florida legislature. Actually, some of my closest friends, not what, not what most people don't know, many of my closest friends in politics are on the other side of the aisle. We have a shared history.
0: Mm-hmm. We have a
1: sh- we grew up the same. Yeah, we generally like the same things. Yeah, it's just politics. We're just like completely totally apart. different. And but there's a respect between us because they know I'm gonna tell it to them straight. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think. They do the same with me. We debate, we disagree, but we move on.
0: And that's Florida.
1: That's Florida.
0: Then you come to D.C.
1: Come to D.C. And so I reach out and I'm like, hey, you know, I would like to be a part. We just didn't hear anything. And it wasn't, we didn't hear anything for months. And my chief of staff would reach out about once a month to see, hey, you know, what's the status? Nothing. Then an article drops innocu- innocuously on the internet. And then reporters are coming to me. And so I go to my staff, I'm like, where'd this come from? They're all like, we don't know. So I'm like, well, somebody on their side leaked something or said something to a reporter. Well, now I'll, go ahead, back out. Now I'll go ahead and talk. And I think even now, I think the issue with the caucuses is, is that they're so caught up in the in the toxicity of Washington that they've ignored the very basic premise of their caucus. Like we've had Black Republicans in the Congressional Black Caucus before. Really? Oh yeah, Alan West was in. Mia Love was in. Um,
0: so this is the first time they've said no.
1: They've said no before. Well, it's been like a mutual no. There's okay. been other members who came in who didn't want to be a part. Okay. And they were like, well, okay, fine. But what but was it's the rationale
0: of not letting you in? You don't know. I don't know. You're a your Republican.
1: What I think is, is that it's not even so much that I'm a Republican. I think it's also that, you know, I'm a Trump Republican. <laughs> I support the president. Yep. I think I think that 45 is, he's one of the great presidents of our of our country, even though the media and, and you know, conventional liberal wisdom is, is that he was awful. That's just simply not true.
0: I think that's so upsetting, though, because most Americans mm. do want to see diversity of opinion and thought. Yeah. And why not allow you into the caucus to, to offer a different viewpoint? I just think that's not what our country is about. And that's sad that they didn't do that. But we've got another divisive issue that you've really been vocal on, which is CRT. So talk about your stance on this and why you've been so out front on CRT in our kids' schools. Well, I mean,
1: first of all, the reason I've been outspoken on this is because you cannot bring subjectivity into the classroom. Mm -hmm. You simply can't. You have young people. They're kids. Like, I got three of them, 18, 14, 10. Wow. I don't want their viewpoint of the country just being shaped by whatever their teacher told them in class. I want them to learn, like, the actual history of the country. Learn it all. I mean, learn all of it. Good, bad, ugly. You should learn it all. doesn't matter. It's
0: not about changing the history.
1: So what's funny is, you know, I'm I'm in the middle of packing my house. um, And I actually found an old notebook from when I was in school, fifth grade. And I'm going through the notebook, and I mean, it was actually a composition book, you know, and I'm going through it, and I'm looking at the level of detail, whether it was history, math, science, et cetera. And when it came to history, it was actually quite detailed, the stuff they had us going through in the fifth grade. I don't have a problem teaching my kids the history of our country. I tell it to them often. But what I don't want is for a liberal worldview, or frankly, even a conservative worldview, to be going into kids at the age of seven, eight, nine, and 10. Just teach them the who, what, and the where. Tell them what happened. Give them the baseline of information. Now, as they matriculate, they get older. You start talking about 11th, 12th grade and college. Then you can start talking about some of the semantics. But we should never be subjective. Critical race theory is highly subjective mm-hmm. because its entire view of American history uses race as a lens. And, and frankly, the imposition the on Black Americans In our in our country's history, as the focal point as to why there are issues in the country, but there's so many more dynamics than just race, and this is the problem with that entire thought process. And the left, they're pretty slick. Now they'll they'll tell you, "Oh, we don't teach it in the classroom." That's not true. I was like, "Well, you do in some classes." But where it really has gotten into our academic um, environment is through the diversity, equity, and inclusion seminars mm-hmm. that teachers take, mm-hmm. that administrators take. Mm-hmm. I did meet the press. I'm with one of the—I'm with the head of the—I think it's the Loudoun County or Fairfax County School District. I can't remember which one. And so she literally said, oh, no, we don't teach critical race theory. What we do is we educate uh, young people about their biases that they may not even know that they have. We try to help them fix their biases for the future. And I looked—I literally looked at her. And I said, this is what parents don't want you to do. Everybody has their own issues. They see the world through their lens. We all understand that. But when you're teaching children, you're supposed to give them the basic information that they need so that you can build upon it as they get older. And that through their own logic stream, through what their their family structures are, that's how you help them come into the world and be productive citizens. It is not the purpose of the public school system to do that for kids.
0: And you you do need to talk about the history, the good and the bad. We need that to be taught to our kids. But at five years old, to mm-hmm. basically say you 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 were born racist or you were born right. this it's just not appropriate and it's not what our schools are for. And I think it's become an activist type education rather than an information type education. And that is not good for our kids in our country long-term. I also feel like we should be focusing more on bringing people together instead of dividing. Let's find the ways that we can find common ground and move forward towards the best of what we want to be instead of always Mm -hmm. focusing on the worst of what we don't want to be. Uh, You've been so vocal on that. We were talking about it the other night, and you said a lot of the media won't let you on. Hey, not Isn't that funny? You're willing. Yeah. What, what people don't understand is you're willing to go anywhere, anytime, any place yeah. on any network. And I get this all the time. Oh, why aren't Republicans on on CNN? Why aren't Republicans on MSNBC? When you get booked, what happens on those shows? Well, MSNBC won't even book you, right? They
1: will not book me. I did. I did one. I did one. Okay, I did okay. meet the press, and that was really a digital That's hit. NBC, yeah. And then they dropped it on uh, NBC Sunday over the over the holidays. Done CNN a couple times. They thought they were going to get me. I got them. It was fun, uh, but I've done Tavis Smiley's radio show in Los Angeles. I've done Roland Martin's show. Really? Oh, that one was fun. Like we literally shouted go over each other yeah, for gotta about gotta twenty minutes uh, because I wasn't going to back down from him. He wasn't going to back down from me. Uh, but at the same time, you got to you know get your point across. Uh, and of course, you know I do a lot of Fox News, Max, OAN. The, the key thing is when I decided to run this time and come to Congress. The purpose wasn't just to push the button over on the on the House floor; it was about taking the message of conservatism to all communities, to the entire country. Because I believe that when people actually have an opportunity to hear another thought process, that gives them information to make a better decision. Totally. So many people in our country never really hear our side of the issue, and so I the way I looked at it was, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to make sure I'm at the front lines if possible.
0: I love to, it to about take, you. To take I think ideas. you're fearless. I love it because I see you out there and it's not easy. No. And I know it's not easy to be on some of these networks where it's they're trying to get a gotcha moment. Yeah. They're trying to use you for clickbait. But you're so strong in your background and your knowledge of these issues that you're willing to go and take them head on. Uh, it's part of the reason why the RNC is opening community centers in mm. Black and Asian and, and Hispanic communities to go into communities that have not been uh around our party have not been habitually republican and introduce them to our party and the dialogue we're having around things like school choice and other things are really moving the needle i'm going to go back to your state for a minute sure everybody is moving to florida that's right everybody's moving to florida so let's talk about what's happening in a state like florida with a republican governor Mm -hmm. what you guys have done differently on the mandates and why do you think everybody's flocking to your state and leaving states like mine under the control of uh, the, the People's Republic of Gretchen Whitmer?
1: <laughs> I, I think I think two things. I think first, I, I, it's important for people to understand like Florida is not an accident. Yep. It, we just didn't end up like this. We've had 27 years of conservative leadership in our state. You know, we started with Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush was the first Republican governor in, in geez, I don't even know how long in yeah. our state's history. Um, we had Charlie Chris, but the legislature held him accountable. Um, Charlie's for Charlie. I mean, let's just be honest, okay? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to talk too much about Charlie. Yeah. We then had Rick Scott, and now we have Ron DeSantis. The entire time, we had great legislative leaders in the Florida Legislature, we have Mario Diaz-Balart, Norstio Balart, excuse me. We yep. have Dan Webster, yep. uh, Greg Stubbe, who now serves. He's in the district ab- above mine. Matt Gates started in our in our legislature. I've been in the legislature. We've had conservative people come and lead our state. For more than two decades now.
0: So what are the policies that are working in Florida right. that are drawing Americans to your state? What, being a former legislator, being a congressman, right. what do you see that's attracting people to Florida? Because it is Republican policies okay. that are bringing people to your state on oh. top of really great weather.
1: I mean, the weather speaks for itself. Yeah but we've kept a low tax environment and we've always fought to maintain it and in some respects drive it lower. We have open access for our business community to come in and just work. We don't get in front of their face. We don't put a lot of top-down mandates on them. A lot of times we hold back some cities in our state that decided they want to go and start putting on new regulations on business. And we say, no, you cannot do that. Yep. We have the most robust school choice um, uh, framework of any state in the country by far.
0: Let's talk about that for sure. a minute. you. Your wife Erica is very involved in school choice too. Yeah. But school choice is part of the fabric of Florida and yes. it did start I think under Jeb Bush. Yes. And I know it was a big factor in Ron DeSantis's win mm-hmm. with Hispanic and African-American voters yeah. that really embrace school choice. So explain why school choice is so important and why are Democrats against something that is so common sense when we know education is the gateway to success?
1: So when I was in the first grade, my mom pulled me out of public school. She did? She did. She pulled me out because they weren't challenging me. In her, her mind, she was like, listen, my son needs more than this.
0: And your mom's a single mom, single right? Single
1: mom we were poor. It's like she didn't have money. Okay, She just sacrificed and found a way, which is what so many mothers and frankly, fathers want to do in our country right now. They want to find a way for their child. For a lot of them, it's very difficult or impossible to find a way. So she literally, my mom was school choice before school choice was a thing. (laughs) She was
0: school choice before it was school. Way
1: before it was a thing. And she pulled me out. The public school system told her you you don't know what you're doing you're not going to be able to get a better education for him than here and she said no and she went and found something else so thank you mom thank you mom every parent wants that for their children in florida not only do we recognize it we've actually done the hard work to make it a reality for the poorest families in our state we have 100,000 kids who are on our tax credit scholarship. It's a scholarship where businesses can give a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credit so that a poor kid can get a scholarship to go to the school of their choice. That's amazing. That's powerful for a family. That is so
0: amazing.
1: It's powerful for the next generation. Now, why do the Democrats oppose it? Because they need the teachers' union to get elected.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't do that. They know that if the teachers' union isn't rallying the union members and sending people out to the polls and doing all the other stuff, they won't win. And so the, there was a friend of mine. I will not say his name. I'm going to leave him out for now. Okay. He's on the other side of the aisle. He supported one of our, of our uh, education initiatives my last year in the legislature. The union unendorsed him. Really? Yes, they did. Just
0: because he supported Just one. Just because
1: he supported one. They unendorsed him. We, we talked about it. And he goes, I don't understand. He goes, I've been with them every step of the way. But because of this one thing, now I'm out. And he's like, and I'm a huge, I'm a big supporter of the public school system. And I looked at him and I said, you got to understand, they are a monopoly. They have monopolistic control. And anything that unwinds that, unwinds the very fabric of that institution. I'm not against education. I used to be a charter school guy. Now I'm a parental choice guy. Yeah. If, if you want to go to a charter, great. If you want to stay in your local neighborhood school, great. If you want to go to a private school, great. If you want to homeschool, great. If you want to go to a religious school, great. My thing is, with all the tax money that we spend, what we should be doing as a government is making sure that children and, frankly, parents have purchasing power to go find the academic environment that's best for their child.
0: I think the pandemic awoke parents yes. to what's going on in their kids' school. I'm a, I'm a parent of public school kids. Right. Watching the unions have so much control of shutting down our kids' school getting so much funding funneled into the schools and then still not opening the schools. And Glenn Youngkin's race in Virginia just showed that. In Michigan, the Democrat Party just put out a a post that said parents are not the clients of the public schools. Mm -hmm. We're the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. We're speaking up for our kids. So I love that we're talking about parental rights. And I think it's so strong what's happened in Florida. It's the model for the rest of the country. And I know that you've been... A huge champion of that.
1: Well, two other quick things I'm gonna yeah, tell you. Yeah, yeah, tell me. We were the first state to actually pass a bill for parental rights. Yeah. Erin Grahl, colleague of mine, Vero Beach, Florida, she actually wrote the statute that's now in Florida statutes, a whole new section. She wrote it for what parental rights are in our state. And you couple all that with what Ron DeSantis understands that people need to get information but they need to largely be free to make their own decisions. That's how we've managed COVID. And that's why our numbers are better, frankly, than Washington, D.C., New York, or California, because we let people have information. We let them manage their lives, and we brought other things to the forefront to help them get through COVID if that's the thing that ails them at that particular point in time. Nobody was talking about Regeneron and monoclonal antibodies until Ron DeSantis actually did the research, stopped, did not play politics, and actually gave people things that were going to help them get through covid Get
0: those therapeutics. Yeah. But he kept the kids in school. He did. He did, because I know my my nieces who are yeah. in your district were in school, and my kids weren't. And it really, my kids weren't in five-day week in person. They were virtual. But right. it really was a difference to see my niece go to homecoming, to see her living oh, yeah. what a normal teenager has, uh, um, does at those years, the things that my kids lost by those things. But beyond that, it's not just COVID as a pandemic now. It's a mental health camp pandemic for these young kids who've really is. suffered in the classroom. So I just appreciate you being so strong on that. Let's end with something sure. that Democrats are pushing so much as a civil rights issue. And I just want to hear your take on it. Yeah. Cause I think they're just full of crap. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. When Biden's in Georgia talking about voting rights mm-hmm. as Democrats are pushing for 900,000 non-citizens to vote in New York, what do you think about Democrats turning, um, having an ID to vote into a racial issue and saying that that makes you a racist if you think people should have an ID to vote?
1: I think it's stupid. Yeah. I think everybody else thinks it's stupid. Anybody that kind of pays attention. I mean, look, first, let me take the ID, then I'm going to talk about their whole push on it. All right. Let's talk about rights. it. You need an ID for everything in our, in our country. You need an ID to get on a plane, just like I did. Mm-hmm. Now in, in Washington DC, you need an ID and a Vax card to go have dinner somewhere. Exactly. So what they're talking about is ludicrous and it's insane. There's a, it's a bigger picture than this right now. They're taking, and they literally just did it on MLK's uh, uh, holiday. They are taking the mantle of Martin Luther King and the mantle of all the people who who worked hard, they fought, they bled, some died so that Black Americans could have the right to vote in the United States. And they're cheapening that so they can accomplish a political end today. People will tell me, well, Byron, do you believe in voting rights? And I'm like, of course I do. And I have to educate them and say, look, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which, by the way, was overwhelmingly passed by Republicans Republicans, over Democrat filibuster threats, side history. I said, here's the deal. That bill is still law today, except for one provision, and that's preclearance. Preclearance is the thing where if you had a county that was, a racially discriminatory county back in that time period and they literally stopped Black people from voting, they then had to get any changes to their rules or their laws approved by the Department of Justice. By DOJ, yeah. Made total sense. The Supreme Court realized in 2013 no county was subject to preclearance anymore because none of them were discriminating against Black voters. So what's the problem? If you wanted to pass a bill for the Voting Rights Act, the reauthorization, but just ignore pre-clearance because nobody needs it anymore. It will pass overwhelmingly in both chambers, but that it will be unanimous in both chambers, not even overwhelmingly. Let me not say
0: that. It'd be unanimous.
1: It would be unanimous. But what the Democrats want is they want to turn every election jurisdiction into a pre-clearance jurisdiction. So no state, no locality can make any changes to their election law. Without the voting rights section of the Department of Justice, which is one of the most radical sections of the Department of Justice, to approve their laws. Number one, that's illogical. But number two, it's not constitutional and it flies in the face of federalism. Our states have done a tremendous job, obviously in the 21st century, but even since the Voting Rights Act of of truly progressing and allowing everybody to vote. And that's the case today. But the Democrats don't want that.
0: They don't want that. They, well, they say it needs to be easy to vote. It's easier to vote than ever. I mean, if, if you look at oh, yeah. Atlanta right now, the, the, the laws that they're fighting in Georgia that they say were so terrible, voting went up in Atlanta 17% after this law was passed. And mm-hmm. the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said there were no problems. Everything zero was great. Problems. No lines, zero problems. So it's just a false narrative that they're putting forward. And they are diminishing um, real racial issues by using this... For to further their purposes. And they are diminishing an ability to have conversations and improve what we, what we can improve mm. because they're using it to create a wedge. And I think it's really, really wrong. So I'm so appreciative of you. As of now, you have no primary, right. but you are running for Congress again in 2022. Mm. What can people do to help you in your race?
1: Honestly, go to ByronDonalds.com, sign up to help us out, volunteer. If you can make a donation, that's great as well. We're just going to continue to work hard for Southwest Florida.
0: And what would your advice be to anybody heading into 2022 as to how to get involved? I mean, we need all hands on deck for this election. So what do you say to people who are discouraged or mad or worried that their vote won't count? What's your message to those voters?
1: Well, the first thing I'll tell you is you better go vote. Yeah. You know, because look, it's like in any other sporting event. If you don't take the field, you forfeit.
0: Exactly and so you right. want to
1: forfeit to these guys over there? No, no, no. You need to go vote. That's number one. Number two, um, support your local party. Get involved. Do something. Hold a sign. You know, canvas a neighborhood. Knock on doors. Make phone calls. Be a poll watcher. Do something. Be, be a part of the solution.
0: Our country's at stake. That's right. So do not sit at home and be a couch potato. What did you say? We, we need to be moving on all cylinder. What did you say? We're going to be cooking with gas. Oh, we got to be get, cooking with gas. We're going to be cooking with yeah. gas. We got to do if that. If people don't
1: vote, we're just going to be cooking and be like, where's the heat? <laughs> we need people to vote. We got to get out there. I
0: have never heard that expression before. We're going to be cooking without any heat if you don't vote. That's we right. need the gas. That's so right. get it to us. All right. Well, thank you so much. I love having you on our podcast and we love having you as one of our great freshman rock stars in Congress. Thanks, thank Byron. You. Thank you. I'm Ronna McDaniel, and this is what Republicans stand for. Join us next time on Real America.
1: Paid for by the Republican National Committee. Not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. www.gop.com.